This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello. This is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. This past year has seen a rise in popular resistance unprecedented in recent times, from Arab Spring to Greece to Occupy Wall Street to student protests in Chile, Quebec, and elsewhere. On today's alert, the final episode for the 2011-2012 season. On the occasion of May Day, we commemorate the struggle of the working class with three special features. We'll hear from May Burroughs, an organizer with the campaign to introduce a living wage to BC. We'll hear part of Noam Chomsky's May Day address to the people of Winnipeg. And Clayton Thomas Muller is back to give us the lowdown on the state of Indigenous resistance in Canada. But first, here are the headlines for the week of May 3rd, 2012. Students in Quebec have rejected the Charest government's latest tuition fee proposal, which would spread the increases over seven years instead of the originally proposed five. Hours after the announcement, students marched through the streets of Montreal to show their opposition. Several protesters were arrested. Students say that due to inflation, the latest proposal would amount to an 82% increase in fees instead of 75% if increases were spread over five years. Talks between students and government broke down earlier this week after the education minister refused to meet with CLASS, the group considered to be the most radical student association. Students in Quebec have now been on strike for 11 weeks. Employers in Canada are now able to pay temporary foreign workers 15% less than the average wage. Under a two-tier wage system, workers must be paid the minimum wage but only foreign workers will be making less than the average wage paid to Canadians for doing the same job. The change will certainly increase the number of temporary foreign workers in Canada, which has already grown by 40% since Harper took power in 2006, as employers can now hire workers eager to come to Canada and pay them low wages for long hours of work. Immigration Minister Jason Kenney hinted further exploitation of migrant workers is in the works. Quote, going forward, our government will consider additional measures to strengthen and improve the program, he said. The Canadian think tank, the Fraser Institute, has received over half a million dollars since 2007 from oil and gas billionaires, U.S. tax documents reveal. While it has been long rumored, the documents confirm that David and Charles Koch donated the money to the right-wing Fraser Institute for research and educational programs. While the think tank claims to be non-political, it is called for right-to-work legislation, changes to election spending laws, and other measures to support small government and free market values. The confirmation of these donations comes just after the Canadian government criticized environmental groups for taking donations from foreign companies to rally against tar sands development in Canada. Last week, 
Stephen Harper accused the NDP of, quote, not wanting to support the war against Hitler in 1939. Of course, the Prime Minister was wrong, considering the NDP did not exist until 1961. The comment came from Harper after asking to defend his consideration to extend Canada's occupation of Afghanistan beyond the current 2014 end date. Canada's military presence in Afghanistan was extended in 2006, 2008, and again in 2010. Harper is considering extending the withdrawal date once more after U.S. President Obama confirmed a political agreement with Afghan President Karzai to keep U.S. forces in the country until 2024. Critics are suggesting increasing development aid money after 2014 rather than extending the military presence. But with budget cuts to foreign aid programs, that is an unlikely option for Harper's conservatives. Nearly half of the 5,000 jobs at Statistics Canada is next on the chopping block, as the Conservative government continues to roll out the cuts within the 2012 budget. Harper targeted StatsCan back in 2010 when the government replaced the mandatory long-form census with a voluntary one. These significant losses will affect the scope of information the department can produce, and without reliable nonpartisan data collection, Canadians may not know exactly how Harper's cuts are changing the country. Other departments facing cuts and job losses include Aboriginal Affairs and Northern Canada, Parks Canada, Human Resources and Skills Development, and Library and Archives Canada. Environmental groups estimate that the U.S will triple the amount of dirty oil they import from Canada over the next eight years. Michael Marks of the Sierra Club argues that bitumen, the tar sands oil, is far more dangerous than regular oil. Quote, We've got all this unconventional crude and we're completely unprepared for it, he said. A recent report by the Sierra Club revealed that pipelines in Alberta that regularly transport dirty oil had 16 times the number of leaks than pipelines in the U.S., which generally don't carry it. As Canada is planning to increase tar sands development, more pipelines are being proposed, including the Northern Gateway Pipeline in Western Canada and the Keystone XL Pipeline, which would pass through ecologically sensitive areas in the U.S. Israel's former security chief criticized the country's leadership for misleading the public on Iran. Quote, They tell the public that if Israel acts, Iran won't have a nuclear bomb. This is misleading. Actually, many experts say that an Israeli attack would accelerate the Iranian nuclear race, said Yuval Diskin, who retired from the Israel Intelligence Agency last year. Diskin also expressed no confidence in the Prime Minister or Defense Minister to conduct a war against Iran. Quote, My major problem is that I have no faith in the current leadership, he said, and I don't believe in a leadership that makes decisions based on messianic feelings. Unquote. Those were your alert headlines for this week. And now for Around the Left for the week of May 3rd, 2012. 
The Winnipeg-based Mayworks Festival of Labor and the Arts joins festivals across the country to honor May Day and working-class culture through song, dance, film, and stories. The 2012 festival theme, Change the World, invites the community to be the change they want to see by participating in a medley of events taking place throughout the month of May until June 2nd. For more information, check out the website mayworks.org. The Yinka Dene Alliance is taking a freedom train across Canada to enforce their legal ban on the Enbridge Northern Gateway oil pipelines and tankers project and to stand up for their freedom to choose their own future. They are traveling from their territories in northern BC all the way to Enbridge's annual shareholders meeting in Toronto. The freedom train will be in Winnipeg on May 4th and 5th. So come show your support for Indigenous rights and the environment. A welcome feast will take place May 4th at Thunderbird House at 6 o'clock p.m., followed by a panel discussion at 8 p.m. The following day, May 5th, at 1 p.m., there will be a rally at the Udina Celebration Circle at the Forks, including a water ceremony and alliance-making ceremony. For more information, email nopipelinenotankers at mail.com. The fourth annual Mining Injustice Conference will take place May 5th and 6th at the University of Toronto. This year's theme will simply be resistance and will highlight the struggles and victories of peoples living in mining-affected communities. Speakers will come from all over the world, including Ontario, Quebec, Guatemala, Colombia, Papua New Guinea, Tanzania, Chile, El Salvador, and more. Keynote speakers include academic and activist Avi Chomsky. For more information, search for the Facebook event or visit www.solidarityresponse.net. The Crisis and the Left. Where does Occupy lead now? Francis Fox Piven joins David McNally, Leo Panich, and Greg Albo to launch the latest issue of the Socialist Register as well as the new book, Who's Afraid of Francis Fox Piven? The Essential Writings of the Professor Glenn Beck Loves to Hate. The launch will take place Sunday, May 6th at 4 p.m. at Oakham House, Ryerson Student Center in Toronto, with a reception to follow. Don't miss this opportunity to hear Francis Fox Piven, the foremost U.S. theorist of social movements, speak on where the Occupy movement goes from here. This event is a part of the Leftwards Festival of Books and Ideas under the umbrella of the Mayworks Festival of Working People and the Arts, which runs from May 5th to the 13th and includes many performances, exhibits, and other events. To learn more, visit www.mayworks.ca. Sustaining our future means rethinking the relationship of economic growth to human well-being and environmental integrity. The International Conference on Degrowth in the Americas, taking place from May 13th to 19th in Montreal, will explore the possibilities of a post-growth world. Building on the degrowth conferences in Paris in 2008 and Barcelona in 2010, the conference will place the décroissance movement that began in Europe in the context of the Americas. Speakers include David Suzuki, William Rees, and Mary Evelyn Tucker, among many others. 
Registration is now open at montreal.degrowth.org. For more information, email montreal at degrowth.net. That was Around the Left for the week of May 3rd, 2012. The Harper government has cut funding to Aboriginal health groups like NAHO, championed oil pipelines crossing Aboriginal land, and even accused critics of tar sands mining as pawns of foreign interests. Aboriginal people have as much reason as ever to fight back against these and other measures. So what is the state of Indigenous resistance in Canada? Joining us to discuss this question is Clayton Thomas Muller. He is a member of Defenders of the Land and the Tar Sands Campaigner with the Indigenous Environmental Network and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Welcome back to Alert, Clay. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Okay, uh, first of all, uh, why don't we uh, address that question? Where is the fight back most pronounced in your opinion? <clears throat> well, you know, I think it's on multiple battlefronts. Um, you know, we, we, we are faced with this incredible time of austerity, which we know is just an extension of the, the neoliberal agenda, you know, to entrench capitalism and whatever future uh, a, a, a post-climate crisis world holds for all of us. Um, you know, I know that uh, right now, as we speak, there are 40 members of the Yinka Denny Alliance who have acquired a train car and are traveling across Canada with stops in cities like Saskatoon, Edmonton, Winnipeg, uh, en route to Toronto, to where they will confront the Enbridge uh, Pipeline Company, who's trying to build a massive tar sands pipeline across their territory in northern BC. And at these stops, they will have rallies, they will hold ceremony, and they will raise awareness about, you know, this government's reckless agenda, um, where they're slashing funding, uh, you know, to the Public Service Alliance of Canada's uh, workers. You know, workers are getting laid off in all departments of the federal government, especially uh, Environment Canada. Over 2,000 mostly scientific staff were fired, uh, given their pink slips. Um and as we know, you know, uh, uh, as this country guts 50 years of environmental regulations and mechanisms, that the connection between human health and ecological health is extremely pronounced in our Aboriginal communities because of our hunting and fishing way of life. And so, you know, the state of resistance right now is a very critical one. Uh, it's very divided. Um, you know, Native people in this country continue to, you know, experience the worst of the worst statistics when it comes to socioeconomic status. Um, but at the same time, there has never been more visibility, uh, I think, um, than there is right now on the, on the struggles of our people across this country. And there's never been more support either. So I think that it's a very exciting time, albeit uh, a very precarious time. Could you address the question of, of how unified uh, Aboriginal struggles are, given potential differences that could arise around tactics or, uh, you know, the, the possibility that some bands could be uh, paid off? Uh, and, and the, you know, how, how unified are they? Could you, you address some of the, the hazards that, are, uh, that threaten to break up that uh, common front? 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, let's take a look at Fish Lake in B.C. You've got the Seco Mines, which, you know, is trying to turn Fish Lake, a sacred habitat, a uh, sacred food source, um, you know, for First Nations people in that region. Um, and you've got this mining company that wants to turn it into a massive tailings pond. Now, that First Nation, dozens of solidarity support groups, beat back that application. Um, but, of course, with the current uh, situation, you know, that, that company has turned around and asked the, the uh, prime minister to, you know, exclude uh, specific types of communication from, from its reapplication, you know, um, in, including Aboriginal ceremony or emotional responses from Aboriginal community members who are sharing oral history uh, connections to that specific lake. Um, you know, and, and I mean, if we look at how the Harper government wrestled away, um, you know, the, the, the approvals process from the National Energy Board over the controversial Enbridge Gateway Pipeline, um, you know, they went into that process knowing full well that they were going to uh, completely destroy the credibility of the en- of the National Energy Board, and 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 take that dis- final decision into the hands of their own uh, of the Prime Minister's office. Um, so you know, I think that what what it comes down to is that the Harper government is freaked out, uh, and they are taking extreme extreme measures to try and defend the interests of those that put money in their coffers, and the biggest threat to those interests is the fundamental collective rights, the constitutionally enshrined rights of First Nations people. And, you know, um, we'll have our day in court, and we will uh, take out um, this agenda one way or another. Could you comment on uh, what have uh, has been learned uh, among in Indigenous resistance struggles uh, in, in recent years, particularly since the, the Oka uprising and uh, Gustafson Lake? What's been learned since then? Well, I think that one of the things that is clear is that, you know, our people need to be able to connect with one another in a way that they can share strategies and tactics that are meaningful and that are effective and that are ineffective. Um, There has been many, many different regional pockets of resistance that have come together, whether it's in British Columbia and the groups that organized the No Mining, No Pipelines conference there uh, recently, or whether it's, you know, First Nations here in Ontario that are organizing around the Ring of Fire. You know, there was the recent victory of KI, um, you know, succeeding in getting a permanent ban on mining in their traditional territory. I mean, it took the chief and council to go to jail to do it, but, you know, here we are with that major victory. And we have huge precedent-setting legal decisions, including the Grassy Narrows decision, uh, including the Haida Gwaii decision, and cases that are about to be heard by the Canadian courts, like the Beaver Lake Cree Treaty Rights case against about a dozen tar sands, big oil corporations, the provincial government of Alberta, and the federal government of Canada. Um, and we've seen mass mobilizations, like on June 24th during the G20, or the platform for the resistance convergence uh, against the Vancouver 2010 Olympics, which was no Olympics and stolen native land. There are big things happening, and I think if there is some collective knowledge, it's that we must be diverse in our strategies. Uh, you know, we must take legal actions. We must do the policy interventions at a municipal, 
uh, provincial and federal level and an international level. And we must, most importantly, uh, organize at the grassroots level and educate our community members and those members of the of the settler community of Canada uh, to understand why it's so important that we don't buy into the neoliberal corporate agenda. Now, speaking of the, the settler community, as you put it, how is it important is it among mainstream uh, or other environmental groups uh, fighting the tar sands or clear cuts, fracking uh, or whatever? How important is it that indigenous people be uh, I- involved? Is it important that they be in a leadership position or in what capacity must indigenous people be involved? Oh, indigenous peoples must lead the social movements of Canada, period. As first people of this land, you know, we are the big brothers and the big sisters of our younger uh, sisters and brothers of the settler community. And there's absolutely nothing that they can do about that. And that's a direct quote from my director from a panel that we did in Toronto uh, a month and a half ago, giving Indigenous perspectives on the Occupy movement. Mm. You know, one thing that social movements in Canada must understand is that, you know, Native people in this country... Um, you know, have always been open to sharing the abundance and the sacredness and the the wealth that is represented by this land and all of its natural resources. You know, the two-row wampum, the treaties that have been signed, you know, the ceremonies that have been struck between Native and non-Native over the last few hundred years all signified that. But we still, to this day, have not seen the benefit of these treaties that have been signed. Meanwhile, most of Canada has. And so as we move forward, you know, in building the biggest social movement that, you know, this country and really that the world has ever seen, we have to understand that we have to root that social movement in a strong anti-colonial, anti-racist, and anti-oppression framework so that we do not continue to see mass coalitions and mass uh, uprisings become fractured by our enemies using class and gender and, uh, you know, sexism and all of these divisive tools of oppression um, to keep us weak. We have to not solve racism or try and facilitate reconciliation in a day, but what I'm saying is that we need to lift those most disproportionately affected by the current economic paradigm to the forefront of the movement if we're really going to shift the power paradigm. And that means lifting up Aboriginal people, Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, whatever you want to to call it, to the forefront of the movement. Well, okay, Clayton, uh, those are uh, very uh, inspiring words, and uh, we definitely appreciate uh, your input uh, into this uh, critical period at this critical and vibrant time in our history. Thanks uh, so much for sharing that with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And we've all got to get together and fight against Emperor Harper. You know, and today being May Day, this is the day that the workers strike back. May the first be with you. (laughs) And also with you. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Clayton Thomas Muller, a member of the uh, Defenders of the Land, the Tar Sands Campaigner for the Indigenous Environmental Network, and a Canadian Dimension Collective member. While the fight for a minimum wage was one of the great achievements of the labor struggles of the past, 
anti-poverty activists have started championing the cause of a so-called living wage. A recent article in Our Times magazine points out that a living wage is both ideal and achievable. Allerges reached the co-author of the recent commentary in Our Times magazine. Uh, she is May Burroughs. She's also uh, active with the Living Wage campaign. So thank you for joining us, May Burroughs. Great that you're picking this up. Okay. Could you uh, maybe explain uh, a little bit better the, the concept of the living wage? Well, it's, it's pretty much what it says it is. Um, what it is is it's a locally calculated um, look at what you actually need to be able to live if you're a family. So it's really called the living wage for families. And it's a real bare bones kind of monthly budget of things like, say, $759 for food, uh, $1,400 for uh, shelter for four people, you know, that kind of thing. So it goes to really the basics, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, childcare, MSP, uh, extended, and a wee bit of a contingency fund. And that's all it is. Okay. And it's been recently uh, recalculated here in British Columbia, and um, what a family needs just to be able to live in this very fundamental way uh, is both parents need to earn $19.14 an hour. So that's really different than the $12 an hour minimum wage. Now, that's uh, a pretty significant gap in terms of uh, what would constitute a living wage and what is accepted as a minimum wage. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, the campaign for a living wage in B.C. itself? Well, um, a lot of where this campaign came from is um, the, the Hospital Employees Union, uh, who represent many of the, um, you know, the dietary, the food staff in hospitals, as well as the cleaners, as well as some of the security people. Um, about seven years ago, the you may recall the Liberal government did a filibuster and took away all of their contracts uh, and dropped their wages by about 6 or $7 an hour. Um, so these people went from a living wage at, at that time of about 17 or $16 an hour down to 9 10 and $11 an hour, which is not a living wage. And so HEU got together with a number of community activists and started a campaign to talk about really how much people should be paid in order to be able to live and support a family. So that's kind of where it came from. But now that the justice of it has spread to the point where we have all kinds of organizations that have got on board, such as Van City uh, Community Credit Union, which is you know, one of the largest credit unions in Canada is now a living wage employer. The United Way of the Lower Mainland is a living wage employer. Even the Canadian Cancer Society has become a living wage employer, which means that not only do they only pay do they pay their staff, you know, like say their program staff and their admin staff and all that kind of stuff a living wage. They often get more than a living wage, but they've made sure that all the contracted out services such as uh, the people who clean, you know, the lodges, the care lodges associated with the Canadian Cancer Society, are also getting a living wage. So when that happened, that meant that those women, mostly, who were doing the cleaning in the lodges, their salaries went up about six bucks an hour. Imagine what a difference that would make to a family. Hmm. You know, so uh, how, how successful have you been in terms of spreading, uh, spreading that... Uh, 
I guess, gospel out uh, across the, uh, the spectrum of employers? Well, um, well, in North America, there's, there's about uh, 140 cities that have, um, or I should say in the U.S., 140 American cities have become living wage employers. We've got about four now, and we're just starting the campaign, municipalities that have become living wage employers. So that means all their contract workers also are getting a living wage. Um, we've had um, uh, some of the, as I said, Van City is, is one of them. Um, there's, the, you know, one of the, the big small businesses here uh, that got Employer of the Year, Eclipse Awards, has become a living wage uh, employer. The um, We've got about 5,000 workers in 26 organizations just in Metro Vancouver alone, and that's really been over the last two or three years that have become living wage employers. This year, the London Olympics is going to be the very first living wage Olympics. So every single one of the 135,000 workers that are going to work on those Olympics, and think about how many of them might have just been at the minimum wage um, or even below it, um, are going to be getting a, a living wage, a wage they can live on. So it's, it's, it's actually um, very encouraging to see that both business and, you know, um, the, uh, communities and uh, cities and unions and all kinds of other organizations have, are taking this up because it, it just is just and it's something that can be done. What are the main obstacles that you've uh, run into in trying to institute a living wage in B.C.? Well, um, one of the obstacles, I mean, most of them are really ideological. So, so it's the whole kind of oftentimes fueled by the Fraser Institute where they'll say things like, well, you know, those people in those jobs cleaning toilets aren't worth more. So why should we pay them more than $9 an hour or $10 an hour? Um, or they'll say... Um, it's, it's the philosophy that says, um, you know, it's a disincentive to the poor if uh, you just hand them everything on a silver platter so it would decrease their, you know, their incentives to work harder if you give them a higher wage, never mind that their kids are going to go to school hungry and have less motivation. Um, but it's that kind of philosophy that is uh, one of the main things. And then secondly, there's always a cry that small business and that business itself um, you know, corporations and so on are just not going to be able to pay those kind of salaries for those people. Um, and, you know, for instance, we're trying to get uh, Simon Fraser University to be a living wage. And so, of course, if you look at the salaries of the people that work in the cafeterias and that do the maintenance and that do the security, they're far below a living wage. But there's never any process or any any foo-for-all that goes on when you know, big increases go to um, administration or professorial salaries. So there's usually money to find in the pot to redistribute. Um, but those are the main arguments. And then there's also real confusion with the minimum wage sometimes. People think we've already got it or what, what's wrong with just a minimum wage. But you can't live on a minimum wage. Mm. I mean, who in the Vancouver metro area uh, with a kid could live with an income of 12 bucks an hour? They have to have two or three jobs. Now, uh, we were having this interview on May Day itself, so I'm uh, curious to know uh, what your take is, uh, as you, you allude to in the article about the role of unions uh, as tenants in, in buildings uh, and, and owners of buildings and how they could, you know, where that uh, campaign is going in terms of, uh, you know, real leverage in achieving uh, these goals. 
Mm-hmm. So, sometimes, you know, we forget where we do have power and leverage, you know, and we actually, we being the trade union movement, have power. So uh, we have power as tenants in these large office buildings, and oftentimes unions actually really run their own show and own their own building. So I'll just tell you about a conversation that uh, I had with, uh, you know, a big union that has uh, buildings in, Oh, probably about 10 communities in BC. It's a large provincial union, and um, they're very, very supportive. They're a very social organization. I said, why don't you guys become living wage employers? And they go, well, we, oh, our, all our employees already are living wage. And of course, who they're thinking of is their campaign people and, you know, the people that, you know, do their bookkeeping and their admin people and their executive and so on. Of course, all of those people get a, a living wage. But then I started asking, well, so what about your food catering? And so the way it works with the living wage campaign is that if you get more than 120 hours of contract work, you know, outside of your own sort of workforce, um, like from a cleaning company or from food caterers or a security company or landscaping, um, then then those employees that are in excess of 120 hours a year would be considered contract employees that should be getting a living wage. And they're invisible. They're completely invisible to most people. Uh, and they are oftentimes getting, well, there's been cases where they're not even getting a minimum wage. And so what you do as a union by insisting that the building that you uh, work in or own pays all its contract workers at least a living wage is that you use your power to lift those people out of poverty because you can do that. And we've seen... Um, what it does is it starts to put a whole pressure on some of the big, um, you know, building management companies like Collier's or whatever, where they're uh, they have cleaning companies to do a whole bunch of buildings. And if if a couple of those, uh, you know, kind of big tenants in those buildings insist on living wage for all the cleaners, it starts to shake it up. And in fact, you know, you can start to win those things. That's in a sense what happened with the Canadian Cancer Society. They've got lodges all over BC, and they work with a cleaning company, and the clean company just squealed at the idea of having to raise the salary to a living wage. But the Canadian Cancer Society insisted upon doing it primarily because, you know, poverty is one of the most important aspects of health. It's one of the most important social determinants. So that was the argument the CCS put forward, saying people can't live on $12 an hour, so you've got to raise their wages to something they can live on so that they can eat healthy and do some exercise. Well, unions can do the same and make a huge difference. Okay, talking about making a difference, uh, where do you see the campaign uh, going as we move forward? What are the the next steps for this campaign? Well, we're really going to, I mean, we're thankful for this um, commentary in in our times because we're going to really start having these discussions with unions because they can make that difference. Um, We're continuing to work with small and large businesses and meeting with boards of trade and encouraging this as kind of the, the standard Um, you know, for corporate social responsibility to think about this aspect of it. Um, Unions who have become living wage employers can now talk, uh, you know, oftentimes in their negotiations about their own members that are earning a living wage and, you know, um, bring that into negotiations. Uh, And then the other aspect of it is that, um, you know, if we had better social policy, uh, such as things like, uh, lower MSP payments. Like here in British Columbia, 
you have to pay for your medical services plan. It's not actually free Medicare. You have to pay for it. And in a way, it's a disproportionate tax for, for poor people. Like they proportionately in their income pay more than, than wealthy people do. So one of the reasons that the living wage went up this year is because the provincial government is charging more for MSP payments. So if we can go after sort of policy campaigns like that and daycare and uh, tiered transit fees, that would, that would actually bring the living wage down because that's how the living wage also works is that it's a combination of what your income is as well as what uh, you have to pay for things such as MSP as well as what your benefits are in okay. your contract. Well, May Burroughs, I, I want to thank you very much for, for sharing uh, that information with alert listeners and uh, I hope that uh, the campaign is uh, successful. Well, thank you for the opportunity and okay. yeah, thanks. Okay, and uh, Alert has been speaking with May Burroughs, co-author of a recent commentary for uh, the uh, magazine Our Times and is also active with the Living Wage Campaign. On May 1st at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, the Mondragon Bookstore and Coffee House in downtown Winnipeg played host to a special video broadcast in which locals got exclusive access to academic, dissident, and renowned American foreign policy critic Noam Chomsky. Here's a portion of Chomsky's May Day address to the Winnipeg audience. Uh, In the case of a financial crisis, the taxpayer can rescue the perpetrators. But in the case of destruction of the environment, nobody can rescue you. And that's what we're facing. It's not the only crisis, but it's probably the major one. And it's inherent in the kind of institutional structures that we have. Well, that again, the popular movements, uh, to an extent, uh, maybe it should be to a greater extent, uh, are um, focusing attention on that. There's something extremely important in Canada, which is one of the main international culprits in uh, uh, moving us towards uh, disaster on uh, uh, on environmental issues. And I don't mean just you know, tar sands in Alberta, uh, but also uh, mining. Mining is mostly an atrocity when you look around the world. I mean, horrible things go on in mining. Canada is one of the major uh, mining sources of mining uh, activity, and it's devastating to third world societies. They're all over the world. There are popular struggles going on against uh, uh, the crimes of mining. Central America and um, India is practically a war over it internally. Uh, South Africa, everywhere, and Canada's got a lot of uh, a lot of dirt in its hands uh, in this respect. I've been involved in some of these things, and Canada's all over the place. The uh, so these these are things that the activist movements have to fa- focus on and participate in, and bring to the fore, and uh, uh, meaning not just deal with these issues but move on to talk about the fundamental institutional reasons for them, which includes things like, say, financialization and concentration of private profit, but it also means the very nature of market systems. To the limited extent that market systems function, and they do, uh, these are the consequences. And uh, the consequences can be lethal in this case, and maybe not in the too distant future. 
Our special May Day issue of Canadian Dimension magazine boasts a sparkling image of a general strike on the cover. It features articles addressing working class resistance in the age of austerity in Canada and abroad, the attack on teachers, and an exclusive analysis of the strategy of the Quebec student movement, as well as a variety of other articles and reviews. This special May-June issue is on stands now. For more details, visit the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com. Hi, this is Richard Bullock. This is Music is a Weapon. And this is the last show of the year. This is our May Day show. And I thought I would try to keep this as focused as I possibly can on the questions of class. So here is Billy Bragg with There is a Power in a Union. There's power in a factory, power in the land, power in the land of the worker. But it all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand there. Is power in a Lessons of the past were all learned in workers' blood and strikes of the bosses we must fight for. In the factories and the farmlands, the trenches full of mud. War has always been the bosses' wife, sir. The union forever defending our rights down with the black men. Who will defend the workers who cannot organize And the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us Money speaks for money, the devil for his own Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone What a comfort to the widow, a light to the child Forever defending our rights Down 
they're taking it away, yes, they're taking it away. They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say. And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today. From the poor and sick and helpless, they are taking it away. Oh, our governments elected in the democratic way Are whining at the cost of all the things they have to pay And the bully boys on Bay Street, you can hear the bastards say To hell with paying taxes, pull the safety net away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say and they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away If you're down upon your luck and need to keep the wolf at bay Just don't rely on welfare or the dole to pay your way For the rich they have decided not another cent to pay You can whistle for your supper for they've taken it away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say and they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away if you're native, black or Asian, if you're feminist or gay If you're just a little different from the most of us today If you want to make your point or if you want to have your say You can spit into the wind because they've taken it away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say and they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away if you're battered by your husband and you need a place to stay You'd best get down upon your knees and quickly learn to pray For the women's centre's phone was disconnected yesterday And there's no one left to talk to, now they've taken it away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say and they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away if it's ever your misfortune in a hospital to stay You'd best not be impatient for a bed on which to lay For your health ain't worth the taxes that the healthy have to pay And the beds were too expensive so they've taken them away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say and they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away Oh, there's those that have and those that don't and those who are okay And there's those who understand that fairness is the only way But there's those who are so comfortable they look the other way they vote for all the villains who would take it all away Oh, they're taking it away, they're taking it away They are taking all the good things you can hear the 
people say And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away So if you've health and wealth and wisdom, stop and spare a thought today. For those who don't and those who can't, there is no other way. Or we might as well give up the ghost and join the USA. For there won't be any difference when they take it all away. Oh, they're taking it away. Yes, they're taking it away. They are taking all the good things you can hear the people say. And they'll take it all tomorrow if they don't take it today From the poor and sick and helpless they are taking it away They're Taking It Away, written by songwriter Ian Robb from Ottawa, Ontario. The song became very important in the struggle in Wisconsin. We played the song a few months ago, but I think it's such an important song that I just wanted to play it again for everybody. And before that, Billy Bragg, There Is Power in a Union. Next, we're going to hear from American singer-songwriter Holly Near telling us what she isn't afraid of. So here's Holly Near with I Ain't Afraid. I ain't afraid I ain't afraid I ain't afraid I ain't afraid of your Yahweh I ain't afraid of your Allah I ain't afraid of your Jesus I'm afraid of what you do Pray and I'm afraid 
Joy the God descended, daughter of Elysium, ray of mirth and rapture blended, goddess to thy shrine we come. By thy magic is united, what's in custom parted by all mankind are brothers plighted. Where thy gentle wings abide. Freude, schöne Götterfunken, Tochter aus Elysium. Wir betreten feuertrunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. Deine Zauber binden wieder, was die Mode streng geteilt. Alle Menschen werden Brüder, wo dein sanfter Fliegel weilt. Before us, build it wide and deep and long. Speed the slow and check the eager. Help the weak and curb the strong. None shall push aside another. None shall let another fall. March beside me, oh my brother. All for one 
That was the beautiful voice of Paul Robeson singing Ode to Joy, and before that, Holly Near with I Ain't Afraid. I'm listening to Paul Robeson, and listening to all the mention, Verden, Breather, all men and women are my brothers and my sisters. I know exactly why I've been coming here every week and doing the show and playing these songs. The world's divided into two groups of people, most obviously. You can define them any kind of way you want. I like to define them as the good guys and the bad guys. And the good guys, well, we got all the good songs. We're going to finish off the year with the Internationale. Here is Mark Blitzstein and the New Singers. This is from way, way long time ago. That's it for this year, folks. I'm Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon Solidarity. That's our show for this season. Thanks for being with us. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonick. Technical producer is Michael Welch. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Seven Days Around the Left 
was prepared by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik, with technical assistance by Andrew Valpi. I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.